National Wallace Chapman joining you. Lovely to be with you. Bootsy Moran and Andrew Hogard with uh, me this afternoon. And let's talk economy first. It's been a tough month for job losses. The start of March, Zero announced plans to cut between 700 and 800 jobs across its business. Just a fortnight later, 430 roles axed from the warehouse group, 90 jobs from food company Goodman Fielder, Sky, T- Sky TV with 170 jobs, and of course, today FM pulled from the air with up to 50 jobs on the line. Meanwhile, a new business survey shows falling sales now a bigger worry than labour shortages. So what are we seeing here? What do these losses signal about the economy? With us is Professor in Economics Robert McCulloch uh, from Auckland University's Business School. Professor McCulloch, kia ora. Kia That's quite a spate of job losses. That's just, that's just the month of March. What is this a reflection of? Well, it's a reflection of the Reserve Bank uh, increasing interest rates. The governor said that he wants this recession. He said that he's engineering it. And uh, the Reserve Bank have formally stated they want more people to be made unemployed and they want the economy to shrink and they want to cause pain. And they're doing that in the name of reducing inflation. So it's an explicit policy of the, of our central bank. It's unusual, by the way, to have a government or central bank saying that they want to cause this kind of pain. Usually the rhetoric is that they'll do anything to avoid a recession or try to bring down inflation gently and engineer a soft landing. But uh, our central bank said explicitly that it wants these job losses to occur. And here they are. When you talk about them like that, that's just a march up to 800 zero uh, warehouse group, you know, 430 Sky TV, 170. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you use the word yourself, Robert, pain. You can feel it, can't you? Yeah, well, we know that unemployment's a source of great uh, distress, and we know statistically it increases uh, pain and stress and all those kinds of uh, negative emotions, which is why. Uh, you know, recessions are typically, you know, we, we try to avoid them. Usually the authorities try to uh, avoid them. I, th- I think what's uh, somewhat disappointing is that when you have job losses in this way, uh, occur in this way, it's through no fault of the employee. The business just says we've had a drop in demand. We don't have as many customers. They can't afford to, to pay. So there may be nothing that the employee has done wrong. But the pressing issue for the country is more uh, inefficiencies. And there do appear to be quite a large number of folks who, um, if, if, if anything, uh, if, probably should lose their jobs. Uh, for example, in uh, some of the government departments in Wellington, uh, middle management paid you know, very high salaries of one to 200,000, many of whom, uh, from what I know, from what I can tell, aren't even going into work very much and are working uh, from home. So those sorts of folks, by the way, are not losing their jobs. These jobs losses are coming from private businesses, and it's a drop in consumer demand. A few, few more questions here. Let's go around the panel on this one. Boopsy, what are you hearing about this? Well, I guess it's interesting because we had the pay a higher wage. Do you think that drives also? So yesterday's discussion about um, do you think the living wage, the living wage is affecting and the minimum wage? Yeah, is that affecting this, um, Robert? Do you find that to be a reason? 
Um, my view is that that probably not. The view, the view of most economists is uh, there are some famous papers that were have become very well known in the subjects arguing that minimum wages don't have huge effects on job losses. I don't think most of this is, is driven only a very small proportion by increases in minimum wage. I think it's mainly due to dropping consumer confidence and uh, higher interest rates and less demand. So m- I think the view of most economists would be it's, it's not primarily attributable to the minimum wage. Okay, Andrew Hargards from the Fed Farmers, the head of Andrew. Let's bring you in. Yeah, um, I guess I'd agree with the um, statement around needing to make a few more um, public servants in Wellington unemployed. Um, I can dare say here yeah, they could find more useful roles in the economy. I guess the, the question I'd have, though, when we look at those companies, are they really the companies that have, would be, you'd expect to first bear the brunt of the inflationary impacts? Because, you know, the like, uh, I, uh, yeah, the warehouse would be one. You know, it's um, consumer-facing. Um, cost of living squeeze is going to impact on, you know, their bottom lines sort of first. But the other ones sort of feel that um, maybe it's, you know, more about the business itself and um, their need to restructure. Um, I wouldn't, yeah, just your gut feel, I wouldn't tie it into the inflation, first of all. I'd think there'd be other businesses that had start, like with the likes of zero, you know, once these inflationary impacts started hurting a lot of small businesses, which they are, and then you started to see small right. business drop away, then you, then I would have thought zero would have had the impact, but maybe they're just reading the tea leaves and deciding to act um, before it is time. Right. I think that's a very good, very strong point, because when people get laid off, it's hard to work out exactly what the cause is. And... One, one cause could be a drop in, in customer demand, but the, the other reason is that the business is seeking efficiencies. And there is an, an old theory going back to a guy, an Austrian economist called Schumpeter, who believed in creative destruction, that um, market economies needed times where uh, a new industry was appearing or new ways of doing things or AI and workers were going to uh, laid off because there were new new technologies being introduced. And, and in a sense, that wasn't necessarily even a bad thing. It was a move to uh, getting things uh, uh, produced at a lower cost. So I, I think uh, th- that that's probably as very significant what, what the previous speaker said, that that c- could be happening as well. And maybe some of these companies are almost using these times as a cover to reduce oh. their, their workforce. But really what's going on is they just want to cut, cut the number of, of uh, employees to drive through efficiencies. You mentioned, Professor McCulloch, this notion of engineering, engineering a recession, mm. uh, and you highlighted that's possibly unusual. How so? Uh, are you saying there are other ways to do it, or is that it's unusual compared to other countries in the OECD? Uh, it, it is highly unusual for a government or a central bank to say we want a recession. Uh, Usually what the governor or the finance minister will say is we want inflation to come down. We're going to do that through increasing rates, interest rates, but we want to do it uh, gradually in a way that inflation will come down, but it won't cause a recession. And that's called a soft landing. And most governments around the world are actually trying to do that now. They're trying to bring down inflation without precipitating a full-blown recession. So it's highly unusual to actually have uh, a governor saying, I actually want the recession. 
Now, to the uh, official cash rate, we've had 10 OCR interest rate increases. Will tomorrow's one be the 11th? Well, it's shaping up that way. Um, I, I mean, my view of, of what happened was the bank was too loose with its $50 billion money printing program a couple of years ago, and now it's trying to overcorrect in the other direction, and it's doing that too, too strongly. Um, that's just not my view. Um, that's the view of folks like uh, Greg Mankiw, a former chair of the U.S. President's Council of Economic Advisers, that this was a mistake done with too loose and now too tight policy. So that's actually quite an influential view in America. Um, so I think, I think we're seeing a, a very grand mistake of the RBNZ playing out now. Quite a bit of response uh, on this. Robert one says there's poor evidence that inflation has been driven by wage rises and better evidence that is driven by supply issues and corporate profit taking. Fighting inflation by causing job losses is more is like fighting a fire with interpretive dance. It misses the target, says Mike. Your thoughts on that there, Robert? Well, yes, I mean, there, there, there is great controversy around, around how to fight inflation. In fact, David Parker, who's the Attorney General, when he was the shadow finance spokesperson when Cunliffe was leader of the Labour Party, he, he wanted uh, uh, contributions to KiwiSaver to be variable, that during times when inflation was going up, uh, people's contributions to KiwiSaver were increased. And that was his sort of preferred way for taming uh, demand, for taming price rises without ratcheting up interest rates. And, you know, that, that was an interesting view that was, you know, that Park, that the Attorney General was promoting at, at the time, that maybe there are less ways that cause less pain at, at, at trying to uh, fight inflation. But as, as your speaker, as, you, as you, the... Uh, Texter. Yeah, as the text has said, um, it's a very broad brush instrument to cause distress with higher interest rates and it causes a lot of collateral damage. Interesting to have you on. A lot of food for thought there, Robert. Kia ora. Thank you very much Kia for ora. your time. That's Professor in Economics uh, at Auckland University's Business School, Robin McCulloch. So, um, uh, and sheeting back to those job numbers, Andrew, I don't know, in your sector. And text me, 2101. Uh, what's the talk in your uh, workforce, your workplace? Uh, are there um, redundancies looming? Uh, are you going through restructuring? What's happening? Let me know. Uh, 2101. What about in farming, Andrew? Um, well, I think the announcement this week by Fonterra to drop the milk price um, will probably be having a number of people thinking about, you know, do they, uh, you know, how do they structure for the next season? Um, because, you know, we've had, you talk about 7% inflation for uh, consumer goods, um, and but in agriculture, it's been about 15% inflation um, because okay. of the massive price rises we've had with fertilizer um, and fuel, and so it's been it's pretty damn tight out there. And you know there'll be people looking at it going, well, geez, am I, you know, if I simplify, will I actually make more money or uh. make my life slightly easier if I just scale back? Um, because there's a shortage of staff as well, so that yeah, everyone's sort of running on empty after the last two years of COVID and just not having enough staff. And um, 
Yeah, it's, it's not a great space, really, in terms of some of those fundamentals at the moment. Andrew Hogart and uh, Bipsy Moran with me this afternoon. Keep those uh, tests coming regarding when was your first cell phone. Uh, the, the mobile phone is 50 years old today. Some really cool uh, tests coming through. And how on earth did you plan pre-cell phone? I'd love to know. Uh, 20 past for the panel. Well, in recent years, the government has introduced multiple policies to address the hundreds of thousands of Kiwis living in cold, damp homes. However, some still believe more could be done. And a new report from Business and Economic Research suggests it'd be worth it. It suggests that New Zealand implement a large-scale retrofit program that would cost billions but balance out in benefits. Is it realistic? With us is Burl Senior Consultant Nick Robinson. Uh, kia ora, Nick. Kia ora, Wallace. Tell us more about this. I understand that there is there are governments across the world looking at this very thing. You've got standard stock, and to protect our young and future populations, you try and retrofit, but at massive cost. Yeah, it does come at a massive cost, but I think rather than looking at the cost, we're better looking at some of the benefits that come about and looking at what New Zealand's achieved through Warmer Kiwi Homes uh, and the Healthy Homes Initiative, you know, applying these to uh, the spending that could be done here, you're looking at sort of, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars potentially of benefits in terms of productivity, health, uh, energy savings and general wellbeing. How much would it cost? Uh, so for 400,000 homes in uh, the worst condition in some of New Zealand's most deprived communities, you're looking at around about $58 billion for the sort of gold package, um, all the way down to a sort of $26 billion cost for uh, a sort of lesser package of measures. Um, and these will be delivered over 30 years. That is extraordinary money, Nick. I mean, you could get a gold standard tunnel in Auckland, for that? <laughs> you could, but, you know, I think that, you know, we need to prioritise health in, in some cases, and improving our homes would go a long way to doing that and would also add to New Zealand's productivity. Um, you know, people will have to take less time off work to look after themselves, look after their children. Um, and so I think, Nick? You know, there are, sorry. Okay. Bootsy. So, Nick, um, my question is, I guess, there's other things that exist already in councils like the Palmy Eco Design Advisor, where they send people out to the home and they help you with um, your length curtains that are long enough to the ground, or they check that you're holding in the heat to keep the moisture out. Um, what's the difference between your retrofitting, um, aside from these more affordable options that exist in different councils? Yeah, so we've looked at um, sort of what what can be done at a sort of larger scale to sort of benefit from the economies of scale that uh, come come around from doing these things, you know, uh, large numbers. So we're looking at things like double glazing, uh, mm-hmm. wall insulation, uh, sort of the, the big picture things, closing up gaps uh, between windows and houses. And so if you don't get that investment, are those options usable? Do they work well too, like the curtain and the other things that we're doing now? Uh, they do things to a certain extent, but there are sort of, bigger measures that can achieve uh, more than just some curtains. Yeah, I think that you're talking about uh, a different scale. I think we talked to Professor Philippa Houghton-Chapman on this uh, three months ago saying the same thing, the idea, Andrew Hargard, of actually properly retrofitting a home so that it is 
really warm, really dry, and that uh, leads to massive follow-on effects generationally. What do you reckon? Oh, it's a challenge. Um, I mean, I've got on our farm, we inherited uh, you know, two cottages that I imagine were 1920s builds. So, right. Um, and it is a challenge keeping them up and keeping them in good state and being able to you know meet the new um, sort of regulations, particularly with how they were designed. And there are days where I'd just love for them to accidentally blow up and I could claim insurance and put something brand new in there because it would be so much easier. Um, the other frustration that I've got, and it's probably similar to what Bootsy was saying, um, is some people, some of my staff struggle to know how to live in a house in terms of, Open your curtains, um, you know, on a day like today in autumn where it's reasonably warm, open your windows, let a bit of air flow through, things like that. Seem, mm. I, I, you know, I'd be worried about, you know, if I was a, a landlord, well, I am a landlord, I guess, um, but investing a hell of a lot into a property, um, you know, you want to know people are going to look after it as well and that you're not just, you know, within a couple of years, it's back to square one again with... Um, Issues with the place. So Nick Andrews talking about the odd person who doesn't open their windows. I, th- I think there's there's more to that. Um, I mean, I open my windows all the time, but <laughs> my house still has no insulation in the walls. It's got right. limited insulation in the floors, and I know how to look after a house. And I'm still getting mould and dampness issues. So mm. there is an element of people not knowing how to live in a house, but so much of it goes back to the quality of the house itself. Very nice to have you on, Nick. Thank you for that. That's Nick Robinson from Burl. He is a senior consultant. They've just put out a report saying that a lot more could be done. What New Zealand needs is to implement a massive, massive program, a large-scale retrofit program that would cost billions of dollars, but in their opinion, it would uh, balance out in benefits. It is 26 past four, the panel on RNZ National. Well, 50 years ago today, history was made. It was on 6th Avenue, New York, and Motorola engineer Martin Cooper made the first mobile call. Dubbed the father of the mobile phone, he thought they could be too much of a distraction. He said, I'm devastated when I see someone crossing the street and they are looking at their cell phone. In the future, we can expect the cell phone to revolutionise education, revolutionise healthcare. But for now, around the panel, can you recall your first Cell phone, Andrew Hogard. I think it was a Nokia thirty-two ten. I think that was the number, uh, the model. It lasted about five months until a rainstorm, and I had it in my jacket pocket, and the pocket filled up with water, and that was it, done and dusted. Um, yeah, and I went through quite a few quite quickly on the similar things of getting crushed under tractors. Um, thankfully, the modern smartphones seem to last a lot longer, so it's a I just, plus for technology. I just thought it was just amazing. I thought that I was part of the future when I uh, switched from landline with the twirly cord, and then I got my first cell phone, 1995, the grand Nokia 1610. Here it is. Happy days. 
just great, great memories. Mid-90s, first cell phone. You don't even have to um, have a cord with it, Bootsy. What, the new phones? You're saying the, the Those starter? phones, portable phones. When was your first one? I a guess, portable phone. Well, it's funny because I even remember having the rotary one, but my uh, StarTag... I think it was a StarTag Motorola with the green screen. But this question had me thinking about my daughter's first one since she's in the age of the smartphone and her first phone is a brick. And really? That's by design. Yeah, because she doesn't get to be part of the Snapchat group or the large WhatsApp groups. And I think that, for me, is a handy. And then she also has to top up. So I think I'm taking her back to that time. Um, my husband died suddenly in 1998. I kept his cell phone for a long time so that I could play his answer message and not hear his voice. Oh, that's sweet. Um, uh, my first phone via the warehouse Nokia, analog, $99, next to useless, uh, says Martin Fangaray. And Tom says, uh, Andrew, and this is really the point, isn't it? I still can't understand how we had high school parties of up to 300 people without cell phones. How did we organise that nonsense? And that's what I'd like to know around the Word panel. of mouth. What? <laughs> Flyers. Yeah, I can remember those days and we, everyone just knew whose place it was and um, we all rocked up. But how, how, did you, how did you know? Someone told someone and someone else told someone and, yeah, we used the Lunch old landline and, <laughs> yeah, rung around and checked out whose house it was that weekend and... Boom, sorted. Bootsy? Yeah, actually, I was lucky. I have an older sister, and she had her own landline, so that was used a lot. Um, even for people just uh, when they're trying to get out, saying they were at a sleepover, they'd give them my second landline as a... <laughs> I just can't recall. I can't imagine how you'd even organize a meeting. How would you do it? You'd, I guess you'd pick up the normal phone. You dial. Can you recall? I, I really enjoyed said No, you just, you wrote it on your hand when someone told you, party here, this is happening. You uh, wrote the hand, address and everything and you had it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I bought my first cell phone in the early 90s, says Chris. It was pretty early days. They called the phone the brick. I needed a spare battery to last all day. The consecutive numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, etc. were gone. So I had to take a number where one digit was repeated and I got Three, four, five, six, six, eight. <laughs> um, did you know the Nokia theme is famous uh, as a classical waltz? And in the 2000s, it was the most played piece of classical music. There we go. How interesting is that? You're on the panel on RNZ National. Uh, we have Bubsy Moran and Andrew Hoggart with us. Now, the song whisperer, we give you the lyrics and you guess the song. Here they are. Will you stand above me? Look my way, never love me. Rain keeps falling, rain keeps falling, down, down, down. What's the song? Text me, 2101. Uh, one person here says, it's the latest song from Peter Gabriel. No, it is not. Time for headlines.